fee becomes secondary. It's about value. And value is all about, at this moment, it'll continue to be the case. It's not going to change the opposite way around. So people talking about new normal. I think we should drop new normal. We should talk about new excellent. That's the future. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and this episode is one I recorded recently with my friend Plamen Ivanov. Plamen is an entrepreneur who immigrated from Bulgaria to the UK and built and sold a couple of businesses before entering the recruiting arena in 2007. I've known Plamen for over five years and we've collaborated numerous times. I've spoken at his events and vice versa. I've come to consider him a friend and also a mentor. He's a brilliant guy to brainstorm with, so I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Currently, Plamen is the chairman of an executive search firm called Grass Greener Group. He's also the co-founder of recruitment technology company iIntro. The iIntro process helps recruitment and search firm owners to transition their businesses from typical CV supplier contingency model to the more consultative models such as retained search and managed service provider. They've got over 200 member firms around the world who've transformed their business with iIntro, winning in excess of 100 million pounds in retained fees. In this interview, Plamen and I talk about differentiating your recruitment services from the competition and how to make that shift from contingency to retain. Plus, Plamen shared some insights from his new book, The Rewired Recruiter. We talked about the new normal, the trends he's seeing across the global recruitment industry, and specifically how we recruiters must change and adapt to that new reality. So let's get to the interview. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. The work that we've done so far is uh, really taken off. Interestingly, since COVID has come on. And uh, just to share some information, in addition to that, we've so far, we've had our best month ever, our best quarter ever, and our best year to date ever since we started to offer this sort of service to other recruitment firms. So Amazing. Uh, the, the whole shift of consultative-based uh, recruitment is actually happening now. And today I'd like to share with you some of the key points that we're learning from interacting with the hundreds of recruiters that we speak on a daily basis. Um, awesome. Just to give you some, some background, if that's okay, uh, Mark. Yeah, Plamen, I was just going to say, before we dive into your observations and the trends and what you're seeing happening, the shift in the marketplace. Could you just tell your story so people, you know, have some context and, you know, your, um, you know, journey in the recruitment industry? Okay. Um, well, we set up a recruitment firm called Grass Greener Group in 2007. Uh, initially, uh, between 2007 and 2010, this business continued to offer a uh, traditional recruitment service, i.e. based on CV supply, either candidate-led or filling roles for clients, but purely on contingency basis. And uh, our average fees in 2010, when we measured them, were £7,100 and uh, 16% approximately. Uh, That's what we charged. Uh, We filled one in five roles, so 20% fill, which is not dissimilar to the marketplace, some do better, some do less, but uh, give or take, that's the measure. Um, 
So I wasn't operationally involved in this business between 2007 and 10. I helped it set it up, but I had other business activities which kept me away from this. Now, in 2009, I sold my last business and I wanted to revisit uh, what we were doing and see if I can add additional value to the people that are already building this business. Uh, so the first question that they asked, not being from a recruitment background, was let's look at the common sense here, step into the common sense corner. And we looked at it purely from a business point of view. So immediately we've sort of identified weak points such as productivity. One in five rows means that you come to work on Monday, if I give you the analogy, work till Friday, only get paid for Friday or Friday afternoon even. Uh, the rest <laughs> right. you work for free. Um the second point is that our average fees was £7,100 and 16%. Now, at the time, this was sort of be probably the benchmark in the marketplace. But interestingly, um, I looked who else is doing recruitment service. And you can look at uh, tier one and tier two search firms. And these firms had a method that ultimately enabled them to charge 30% plus. 30% plus. So... My immediate question was, what were they doing that I cannot possibly model on or adapt into our current business? And within a period of 18 months, we started a journey in, uh, in May 2010. And uh, this journey ultimately, within an 18 months period of time, ended up bringing us from 100% uh, contingent recruitment to 100% retained. Our average fees moved from 16% on average to over 20% on average and 13,450. So we physically doubled the monetary value of our uh, fees. But most importantly, by moving away from contingent to retain, the productivity increased dramatically fivefold because we were getting paid 100% for the work that we did within reason. Right. So that ultimately impacted on our business. We won the best search and selection firm in 2011 in the UK uh, by the Recruitment Business Awards. Um, and in 2013, we became finalist runner-up. We've only ever applied for uh, uh, peer recognition, so to speak, twice. And these were our achievements. We were also front page of Recruiter magazine in 2013 under the title Game Changers. And if one wants to care to have a look, they can find the actual articles in the actual magazine. Uh, it's December 2013 issue. So me being me, uh, thinking, well, this must have a bigger commercial proposition than it being kept as a proprietary solution. So we started a new business called iIntro. And ultimately, we started to, uh, well, we built a, a white label solution uh, as a software. And we started to teach other recruiters how to replicate what we've done. And um, since 2014, as I said to you, we've involved with over 190 recruitment firms, over 70 million pounds of retained recruitment has been won and delivered using our, our solution. And we are motoring on, especially now through COVID. Um, so that's basically um, why perhaps people should listen to what we do. Fantastic. I love it. So we're going to get into COVID and what's going on in the market now and, and, and how we can, you know, come through this. Uh, but first, could you, could you just say a little more about the decision to, you, you were involved in a small recruitment business operating 100% contingency and you shifted within 18 months, you doubled your 
average fee value and went to 100% retained. Um, but I understand that was not, you know, just, you didn't just wave a magic wand. You had some challenges along the way. Could you just dive into that a little bit more as to, you know, what challenges you encountered and, and how you eventually uh, arrived at that, you know, completely retained model? I mean, it's been a journey, frankly speaking, and we've made a lot of mistakes on the way. Um, we trialed and error many times uh, just to see if we can perfect the model. As we speak, we continue to evolve our solution and by adding additional services to it. But uh, what was important thing is that we've taken a decision, a conscious decision, which is very hard to burn bridges. Now, I'm not suggesting that recruiters should do that because it's a, it's a tough decision to make. But at the moment when we've got in our mind a resolve, the, the, the point of uh, we're going to be a uh, 100% retained recruiter, then suddenly everything dropped into place. Now, we've lost some business uh, for contingency uh, 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 businesses other than uh, retained. But what's most important is that... Um, by actually committing to it, we've actually started to win more uh, more business on a retained basis, and that became sufficient for us to create to build a pipeline of three four months of value work, which represented on most occasions one third of our uh, turnover forward. So when a client comes to us and says to us, "Oh, we've never paid twenty five percent fees." Uh, and we've always paid 18% fees and we never engaged a single recruitment firm as opposed to multiple firms. My argument was straight away, from a commercial point of view, if my value, uh, a fee value is £18,000 and uh, a client is saying to me, can you come and gamble with us on a potentially one in five chance of filling the role, um, I would reciprocate back to say to the client, well, would you do this one if you were in my position? Now, that's still not enough to put an argument. So we needed to be able to evidence to our clients as to why our service would demonstrate better value to the client ultimately, as opposed to just doing a CV supply. And the biggest element that made the difference was the fact that consistently our service delivered in excess of 96% retention over a period of 12 months. And we keep measuring this one every quarter vigorously to make sure that uh, we maintain this. So our average retention rate is 96% over 12 months and 93% over 12, uh, 24 months. In other words, our clients managed to actually get the right candidates that delivered for them the right value over a longer period of time, as opposed to the typical uh, 20 to 30% attrition that exists in the marketplace as opposed to 4% attrition. Now, we've also managed to put together um, something called the recruitment process audit, which uses as the basis of the algorithms that we've included there, um, a survey that was published in October 2017 by the Recruitment and Employment Confederation called Perfect Match. And... This survey basically involved over 500 HR and industry professionals. These are industry leaders of big companies, small companies across the board. And the whole survey uh, revolved around asking the question as to why, what happens if you actually lose someone within the first 12 months? So based on the statistics that are available and the algorithms that we put in, now we can show the client 
with evidence based on independent uh, survey uh, what happens if you maintain your 10 or 20 percent, uh, uh, 20 or 30 percent attrition rate as opposed to 4 percent attrition rate? And I can tell you one thing for certain that the biggest cost to industry is not the recruitment fees that people are charging, but the attrition rates that exist and clients accept as the norm. Mm. Um, Wait a sec. Let me just double click on that because that's a really key point. So you, the the point that you're you've the conclusion you came to, which you're able to demonstrate to clients, is that the bigger cost is not the placement fee that you pay to your recruitment agency. It's actually the cost of staff attrition, people who you hire and then ultimately leave within the first one or two years. Absolutely, and we can evidence it. As I said to you, um, uh, perhaps whether we share this one with people, uh, but we have a, a calculator that's available online and people can go in and basically tap in if they want to contact me or whatever else they want to do. But essentially, we quantify to the client what happens at this moment in time uh, if they continue to recruit the way they recruit based on their attrition rates and what happens if they shift this one towards uh, as close as possible to 96%. Now, the algorithms on both calculations, on the left and the right-hand side of the calculator, uh, uh, are identical. So the formulas are identical. Numbers don't lie. The only difference is the percentage rate. And when you actually look at the percentage rate, the numbers are colossal. Now, being able to show this one to a client and being able to demonstrate it to a client opens their eyes. Now, it's not enough just to show the clients that uh, they currently have a cost that can be potentially repaired and recovered. It's also, you need to be able to demonstrate as to why this is. And typically, the main reason for, um, for attrition is, if you actually think of it, there are three levels of assessment in recruitment. The uh, appear to, which is typically evidenced by interaction with people, interviewing. The second one is the can-do, and that's typically uh, elements such as uh, CV, past performance, what they've done, etc., etc. they're candidates. But the third element, which actually has the biggest impact on uh, performance, is the uh, behavior, attitude, cultural match. And this is something that is very difficult to be evidenced objectively uh, by way of simple interview, one or two hour interview, one or two interviews. Um, so most clients uh, take a decision on the basis of the factual information, i.e. CV evidence, and uh, a sort of interaction. Uh, the most important one is that behavioral assessments and matching corporate culture or people culture and making sure that the person fits within the team is something that most people do it by way of gut feeling intuition. Mm-hmm. Some of it may be very accurate, but on most occasions that fails to be the case to the extent of 20 to 30% attrition. And that is the ultimate and massive cost to industry. So adding mm-hmm. these additional three-dimensional assessment processes is really what consultative recruitment is about. And if I could just summarize it, mm-hmm. um, most of the industry focuses on CV supply. And I can, they can dress it as much as they want, but essentially is I've just found three candidates and I've sent them to the client. As soon as I've sent them to the client, this is my transaction done. Then it's up to the client then to assess. Now, if these clients don't assess 
accurately and appropriately with evidence-based tools, then they ultimately end up choosing on the basis of gut feel and intuition. And that ultimately results in 20 to 30% attrition. Using tools upfront to identify the corporate culture and what the clients want from a behavioral point of view, and then matching them against uh, the candidates that come to uh, to market ultimately is the key. That's where we deliver in excess of 96% retention. Awesome. So uh, let me just recap my what I think you're saying. So in order to make that transformation from contingency to retained, um, you actually completely redesigned your delivery uh, model and made it much more rigorous and evidence-based using multi-layered assessments so that it wasn't just supplying CVs and then the client does some interviews where there's some interaction and then they make a kind of gut feel decision and often they get it wrong, resulting in, you know, 20 to 30% attrition. You've redesigned it so that um, the, uh, the, the culture fit and sort of behavioral assessment and attitude assessment is in place as well, which has solved this hidden cost for the client of the staff retention so that you're able to demonstrate that they're actually going to save money in the overall cost of recruitment by using, going with your service. That's exactly it. And it's brilliant. And so just a a couple of points. One thing I love, Plamen, is that you're really focused on differentiation because, and you and I have talked about this before, most recruitment companies uh, and recruiters sound the same. They offer more or less the same, a variation of the same service, or at least that's the perception of the client, right? And perception is reality. If the client can't really see much difference between what I offer, what you offer, what, you know, they're their current supplier offers, then, you know, the only real thing they have to go on is price. And, you know, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, Plamen's, you know, got the same candidates as Mark, as, you know, Bob. So, but Bob only charges 16%. And so let's, let's go with him. And you've really been able to shift the way that clients evaluate how they choose their recruiting supplier and 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 take it away from just the the per fee percentage and get them to understand the other factors that are important, which is I think is genius. Well, uh, just to expand how relevant this yeah. is at this moment in time, right? Um, if you just think of it for a moment, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter how good you are within reason. Your client's perception is that. I need to recruit. That means three recruitment firms or five recruitment firms and between three to 10 CVs delivered to me. And then as soon as I get these, I'll have sufficient number of CVs to start filtering through. Now, you can do whatever you want, but if the market benchmark is, um, to be exact, uh, the industry's current benchmark, according to the REC, is 14.7% last year. Wait, what? what is that percentage? Uh, Fees, the people charge 14.7%. Oh, the average fee That's percentage. Right. I believe That's that in the UK. this year's statistics will drop down even further because of exactly yes. the point that you've made. Clients, uh, recruiters don't have the option to compete on anything else because the perception is already set for the client. And yeah. they come in and they say, well, how can we compete on that? How can we win business where we desperately need? So some companies are already going to market and saying, well, I'll take 12%. 
I'll take 10%. Right. Just give me the job because I've got mouths to feed. Otherwise, I'm going to have to sack these recruiters October forward. So all this is happening as we speak now. So this pressure on fees will be considerable. So until you could provide to re- provide recruitment service, that is a, a me too recruitment service like everybody else, you are very likely to be feeling the pressure of fees. But if you take your service out of the me too recruitment and create a, what I'd call a me only recruitment, i.e. service that does not correlate to CV supply. It's above and beyond, done by what I'd call chartered recruiters, chartered consultants, professionals that actually do the job better than the client and they can evidence that, then what you will see is that gravitation towards this new type of service. And it's inevitable. My book that I published as we're talking, uh, The Rewired Recruiter, in uh, 2000 and, uh, uh, 2020 February, just came out before COVID kicked in. Um the, uh, this book specifically talks about the new generation of recruitment. These are small groups at this moment in time, but they could tell you acceleration is vast. Hence the reason why we've got our best month, quarter, and year ever. Um, people are coming to us because they want uh, a solution. They want to be able to offer to the, to the market something that's different, something that's tangible, something that they can evidence to their clients, because clients are thinking exactly the same way. What can I do to go back to market and be assertive in terms of what's my true cost of uh, of hire? And uh, it's not about fee. Fee becomes secondary. It's about value. And value is all about at this moment, you know, continue to be the case. It's not going to change the opposite way around. So people talking about new normal. I think we should drop new normal. We should talk about new excellent. That's the future. Brilliant. Okay, so let's. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, I think you're right. The price pressure was already there, even you know pre-COVID, and now it's um, it's gotten considerably greater. And I, I've seen um, a client just forwarded me uh, a LinkedIn message she received from a company. I don't know why. I mean, this just shows the level of desperation people are coming to. Uh, it wasn't properly targeted because she is a recruitment agency herself. She's not an end client. So why was this recruitment agency asking her for vacancies? Um, but secondarily, their pitch right off the bat, before trying to understand the client's problem or need or anything, they were saying, uh, we can offer 12% recruitment fees. That was the, the their um, opening you know, uh, salvo to start a conversation was purely on the basis of, uh, of low price, which, um, which is, is worrying that that's what people have kind of come to, that they're feeling so desperate that they're just, they're almost trying anything to try and get business in the door. Um, let's talk about this new excellent then, like what do you see happening right now in the market and what are the trends that, you know, you're observing from your hundreds of interactions with recruitment company owners? You know, when COVID kicked in in March and everybody's thinking, wow, what are we going to do? Everybody sort of overreacted. Now, what I put together is a slide as part of my ongoing uh, presentations where I do. And this is what I call the the five stages of behavioral uh, shift in times of crisis. And if you think of it, there are five stages that everybody goes. It is regardless of whether it's COVID or something else. Now, the first one is overreaction, fear. So we panic, we contract, and we pull inwards. And that uh, comes up with 
closing businesses down, uh, hibernating, uh, putting people on furlough, wait and see, preserving cash. This has already happened. Now, what happens the next thing is human nature is looking now, where's the new base? Where's the new normal? So we've seen it. People are starting to be more active online, um, video interviewing and uh, interaction online is becoming a main issue. And a lot of people are adopting it. Not only that, but everybody's sort of adjusting to this new normal. Now we've created the new base. As soon as you've created the new base is what happens next. And this is basically everybody's looking for good news. And good news is some hope, some validation that we've managed to conquer in some way, shape or form the beast called COVID. And there are some encouraging uh, examples. A lot of people are coming up with vaccines. Now, it's another issue how long it's going to take them to actually produce these vaccines to be able to um, uh, sort of uh, support the world because this is not a problem for the UK, the US or somewhere. The third world countries are probably as needy to deal with the massive issue of COVID throughout. So the next logic is what do we do? How do we actually position ourselves for the next opportunity, the next call? Now, whilst this is happening, if you think of it, everybody, recruiters, employers, business, everybody is saying, we need to get starting back. So we adjust into the new normal. We need to find a way to look for where the opportunities, how can we go back to the new reality? And this actually starts to create new opportunities. Now, the one after that, I believe we're at this stage. Everybody's sort of looking for validation of good news. The fourth stage is where you've got slow recovery. More opportunities are starting to come in and you're starting to see what are called the early adopters, the early movers. I, these are people that are building their credentials with clients. And it's all about empathy. It's all about Share. I mean, we're in the same situation here, whether we are recruiters delivering service or employers hiring recruiters for service. Either way, we need to be respectful to each other. I know fee, fees may be adjusted, but most important is rather than measuring everything by the level of fee, people need to be thinking, what is the service that we are offering to our clients? How can we add value? And this is by way of technology, by way of innovation, by way of doing more than what you've ever done before. Because the new normal will never be the same. We finish with what recruitment used to be. It's never going to be the same. And it might take a year or two. And major adjustments and some victims and carnage will happen on the way. But the fact is that that's evolution. This is what happens every now and again. And this is situations like that will create a kickstart to a new normal that will be better than the one before. Um, last but not least, just to finish these five stages... The last point of behavior is these people that waited to see what's going to happen. They will come to market as well eventually, but it will be what we call the late majority arrival. The late majority arrival will be the ones that will pay the price. So positioning yourself at the forefront and taking, going full out now and demonstrating to your client value add proposition, adjusting, being agile, being flexible, being uh, thinking all the time as to what to add to the business is really the key for future. And that's what we do. We help recruiters identify this one and we give them an end-to-end -end solution as to how they can go back to market and ultimately do better than what they've ever done before. Um, so that's basically a summary of, uh, if you think, psychology of uh, uh, human behavior in the moment of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I recognize every single one of those five 
um, uh, psychological responses as you were going through them. Plamen, uh, would you be able to share the that slide with me? And I'll put it in the show notes as an as an image so people can see it as well. Because I think um, you shared so much information there, and not people will have trouble to retain it. Um, by the way, guys, if you there's going to be lots of value add for this particular episode with links you know, to Plowman's book and so on. So be sure to go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast to not only re-listen to this episode with Plowman, but also read the notes and get some value-added information there as well. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Plamen, um, so you guys are having a, a, a successful um, period during this, this uh, crisis. Um, what I see is that, um, you know, everybody is falling into one of those categories you just mentioned. So whether it's wait and see what happens and, and not very do very much, or whether it's, you know, sharing and empathy, uh, or whether it's going completely, um, you know, under sort of just burying head in the sand and uh, and waiting for things to hoping that things will get better, but I think the problem is people are expecting that eventually things will go back to the way they were before, right? And what you're saying is that's not going to happen. It's not going to go back. So what do you predict? What do you think things will be like once the economy recovers? What permanent changes to our business will be sort of the legacy of COVID nineteen? And. and- well, that's a very, very uh, uh, close topic to my heart. Uh, many years ago, I listened to a professor of economics that teaches the future of work. Her name is Linda Gratton. She teaches uh, that particular topic in the London School of Economics. Now, I listened to a podcast, or not a podcast, a video uh, that she published on uh, on uh, on YouTube. And the video was about saying, and that's basically... 10 years ago, and she's saying the future of work is micro-businesses. And if I can give you some statistics, uh, let me just get them right so I make sure that uh, it's absolutely spot on. I'll start with, uh, well, just first let me finish with Linda Gratton. Um, Linda Gratton says that the future of work is 
providing services to, you become a specialist in your service and you provide it to multiple providers as opposed to the traditional going to work and working nine to five, travel to work and all this waste of time. So to maximize this one, the smaller microeconomy will boom. And the fact that we're going through COVID at this moment in time will absolutely accelerate it. Will accelerate it to the point that by the time we're done with it, it'll never be the same. And uh, the businesses that are smaller, agile businesses, people, uh, companies that, and people for that matter, that can flex and change will ultimately make a significant impact on the future of work. Um, if you think of it from uh, employees' point of view, from candidates' point of view, delivering their services, you will have more businesses that, more micro-businesses that are offering their service to many companies. So contracts, contr- contract work will, in my opinion, increase. Interim appointments will, in my opinion, increase. But Permanent work will also be there because it's not going to happen overnight. This uh, conventional thinking of I have a business and everybody needs to come to the office from nine to five to deliver their service will change dramatically. I mean, Google have announced many months ago that they don't expect anybody to go back to work to their office until 2021. There is other companies that are starting to do exactly the same. So, Bigger companies or smaller businesses are starting to change now to the point of where I think that services will continue to be provided from home without the waste of travel, without the waste of uh, uh, artificial um, costs associated to businesses, i.e. holding big offices and paying corporate rates for London-based uh, top-end offices in the Gherkin or something like that, but it costs uh, £100 a foot. Um, so this is the new economy. The future of, of business is ultimately moving away from uh, corporate entities, big corporate heavy entities to more agile, smaller businesses. And I've got some stats which I need to remind myself to make sure that I'm absolutely... Sure. Plamen, well, just before you share those stats, uh, what was the author, Linda? Linda Gratton basically said at the time, 10 Gratton. years ago, um, that... The president of the United States 15 or 10 or 15 years before didn't have the same quality and speed of information that uh, um, a Maasai warrior has in uh, the middle of Africa just simply with a phone. Right. So the future of work will change because of communication, because of access to data, access to information. And you could see this is the new rising billion the new rising billion of people that will be able through technology to share the resolutions of problems that have been problems for a long time. So by having more access to information that can be shared, ultimately would in- increase increase resolutions for uh, solutions for for people moving forward. Got it. So th- this uh, future of work was already happening. It's just that COVID really has, has sped it up. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Sorry, what was the statistic that you were going to share? Uh, well, I'll give you some stats with the UK um, uh, UK recruitment industry based on the uh, recruitment and employment trend survey that gets published every year. I've, okay. I've got every single copy since 2008 when the REC started to publish it. And cool, all right. The first piece of evidence is that Recruitment fees have gradually decreased year on year with a few years when there is a blip the opposite way. Last year's 
average recruitment fees in the industry were 14.7%. I won't mention the monetary value because it's irrelevant. Some people work in different uh, salary levels than others, but the average recruitment fees last year in the industry were 14.7%. Also, as many as 64% of the industry are operating below 15%. Wow, okay. And only 3% of the industry are operating in 25% plus. Okay. In other words, the standard of service that is perceived by the client, because the clients are the ones that determine what we get paid, um, supply and demand, so to speak. Um, yes. The fact that the clients are, are not paying higher fees means that they're bored with the CV supply service. Some of them consciously, some of them subconsciously. But the fact is that the recruitment fees are reducing. Last year was 15.4%. So the measure of previous year was 15.4%. In 2019, it's dropped down to 14.7%. And there I think what the fees are likely to be when the REC uh, publishes their survey in January 2021. So, Plamen, let me just uh, speak to that for a second because I think this price pressure and the gradual er erosion of uh, placement fee percentage is a reflection of a couple of things. You mentioned supply and demand. So, you know, over the last decade, there's been a massive increase in the number of recruitment agencies, new, you know, new companies. Number two, there's also been a massive trend, uh, companies increasing their own internal talent teams, right? Yes. And uh, so that's created a, perhaps even greater competition than, you know, other agencies. It's competing with clients themselves. Um, and number three, it's this uh, transactional CV supply because the CVs, the data is out there. It's on LinkedIn. It's on job boards. It's on, you know, different agency databases. And if that's all that you have to provide as CVs, then the client is going to get that in the most um, economical way possible and cost effective, cost effective. And that, whether that's their own internal recruiter or whether it's, you know, uh, the agency that has the, the best terms of business or, or what have you. So it's not a surprise that those, you know, that number fee percentage is gradually going down. Now, what I've noticed, though, is that it's, it's at different stages in different parts of the world. Like the UK seems to be one of the most transactional markets where this, you know, you can really see this effect. I see, because I have clients in different countries. I know you do as well. Um, the US still has higher fee percentage than that. But you might, you might tell me that that also is eroding over time. I, I don't know. I don't have figures on that. Whereas some com some countries like Japan, for example, have very high fee percentages, um, and so it, it is. And you know, Germany is is better than the UK as well. So depending on where you do business, uh, it's not it's not going to be fourteen fifty percent. Of course, everywhere. Of course, I mean, just to make a point, um, in the US, the average fees. Firstly, the, uh, uh, apart from Japan, because we have conversations with with recruitment firms in Japan, um, uh, if you think of it, the, the trend is already set, but the trend is influenced by some sort of localized uh, elements. Um, and the UK is probably one of the most competitive markets where you've got 
a vast number of recruitment firms. I believe it's the number is 34,000 plus um, providing recruitment services, 18,000 companies providing permanent recruitment service, if we're talking about that. Uh, and I've got the stats here, which are from the REC. Uh, the uh, 87%, as much as 87% of all the service that's provided in the um, UK is provided by one to nine fairness businesses. Wait, can you repeat that? So 87% of the industry are have less than 10 employees. Correct. And but how is that is that that's based on the volume of business like the and and, and less than half a million turnover. I will send okay. you the actual stats obviously kindly publish okay. them because these are sure. REC stats. But essentially yeah. I'm looking at it now and uh, this the it's a figure 18 from the latest publication and it shows that out of the 18,000 firms that have declared themselves as a permanent recruitment firm, not a mix, not a contract work, just permanent recruitment firms, uh, uh, they have uh, 87%, 15,125 firms up, uh, between zero, I sole traders, so they don't have any employees, to nine fee earners. So in other words, these small micro-businesses are providing as much as 87% of the industry uh, fees in total. Got it. Uh, there is also 10% of firms between 10 and 49 fee, fee earners. And obviously the top end is 3% and 1%. So yeah. imagine, I mean, the micro businesses rule. And uh, there is obviously demographic changes in different countries. And I wouldn't say that's the same stats for the U.S., or the same stats for uh, for Europe or elsewhere, but I think it I think it is actually pretty close. Um, the U.S. also has a lot of you know solo practitioners, yes. small firms, small partnerships, boutiques, uh, and I would say that's the majority rather than the 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 the, the mega firms. Yes, and you know the good news is that we're always looking for good news. The good news is that tell me some good news, Flamin. Uh, listen, there is plenty. We live in the world of abundance. You just need to know where to search for it. Um, right. These micro-businesses are the ones that have the agility, the flexibility, the ability to contract and expand faster than the bigger oil tankers that take them a long time to turn out. They're the speed bots of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the sea world, so to speak, if you can give the references. These are the people that can shrink very quickly, move away from the office, go and work from home, uh, um, these are the ones that can adapt quicker technology and uh, move faster, take decisions uh, quickly. And these are the firms that will basically rule the world. So I suspect that going forward, these are the companies that will sustain better this COVID period and come out at the other end as the rulers of better service provisions. The bigger and the medium-sized firms, the better think twice and get sh uh, into shape quickly. Now, taking decisions fast, even though it might not be the perfect decision, you better take a decision now that's something that's not 100% perfect and then improve it as opposed to waiting to get the perfect solution. And we don't know what's going to be three months from now and six months from now. But if we just wait and see, I think we'll be left behind. So my appeal to everybody that's hopefully listening to this is to make take action. Take action. Even if it's not the perfect action, it's better than 100% inaction. Right. 
Yes, I absolutely agree. Uh, imperfect action always beats perfect inaction. Of course, there you go. Well, mine is a Bulgarianism. Oh, communism, <laughs> as they call it in my business. <laughs> <laughs> they, what do they call it? My colleagues in my business actually make a note of this one. Um, they've, they, they've got a book somewhere that they write all my plumanisms. What I'm, plumanisms, I like it. <laughs> when I'm changing uh, sayings like that to something else. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So um, this all sounds great. I, so here's the thing. We need to get practical now, Plamen, because um, – I think everyone listening will agree with the majority of what we've said today, right? Um, it's logical. We we can see, I mean, everyone can experience this and can see it happening with their own, uh, in, in their own business. But now the question is how, you know, how do I make this shift, you know? And, you know, it's almost counterintuitive because you're telling people in difficult times that they should actually turn down business and be more selective about the way they work with clients, Right. That they should want higher fees. They should go for retained work. And a lot of people listening will be going, well, that's, you know, counterintuitive fantasy because because like, doesn't he understand what what you know, what is this guy plan smoking? He doesn't understand what I've what I'm facing. You know, I'm uh, I'm I, I don't have enough orders. I need more orders. And uh, if I get some orders, I, I have a good chance of filling them and I can keep. The doors open. I can pay my bills, but um, so this isn't the time I should be thinking about increasing rates and and um, you know dem- you know expecting clients to work with me exclusively or on an engaged fee model or a, f- a full retained service. Um, everything you've said, although it sounds fantastic, it sounds too difficult. Like that's going to backfire on me. Okay, um, let me flip it around. Okay. And the first premise is that... By the way, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I agree with you 100%. Sure. But I, I want to try and imagine what people could be thinking when they're listening to us. Talk I agree here. entirely. And I speak to recruiters on a daily basis. Um, so let me, let, me, let me put it into a different perspective here. Now, the first premise is that the world has changed. Yeah. And the world will never be the same. So... The focus is on value-add service proposition. The fee and the method of engagement is secondary. Okay. So if you think of it, on one side, you've got clients that are saying, I've been buying recruitment service in a particular way for the last 10, 20 years. And the only thing that's changed is that before we used to fax the CVs, now we email them. <laughs> yeah. that's. I mean, I'm very crude in this uh, sort of analogy, but... Uh, it is not far from the truth. Yeah. So recruiters are thinking that my job is to deliver the CVs to the client and I need to do them fast. And for this, I get 14.7% or less. I know I say this one because this is the stats. Now, the recruiters need to focus on what can I do above and beyond than providing the CVs? Mm. What can I add to the client? And if you actually think about it, the first thing that a recruiter can add to a client is to actually become more assertive and more objective in their evaluation process of candidates. And rather than saying, I'm going to send you a CV, Mr. or Miss Client, and you can then take over the job, what they need to be saying to the client is that 
let me take over the process and I will do it better than you and I'll give you a better risk reversal than I've ever given you before, just in case you get it wrong. Now, I've had these constant debates on LinkedIn when I say to people, clients should offer 12 months replacement, uh, candidates should, uh, sorry, start again. Uh, recruiters should offer up to 12 months replacement. And guess what I get? And I had one video that got published not long ago, about three, four months ago, from my colleague, James O'Brien. And we've got over, I mean, it went viral. About 20, 30,000 uh, people watched it. And everybody that wrote within reason criticized the fact that they said, why should we take responsibility for the employer for recruiting the way that they recruit. Well, that's the exact point. You don't. You take responsibility for your own action by doing the job better than the recruiter. So that's the value add service that you can add almost instantly. And if you know, if you need to know how to do it, this is what we do. We actually offer people three-dimensional assessment processes that enable recruiters to apply them tomorrow and go, go to their clients and evidence why their service that they offer is better than the client service at this moment in time, starting with the recruitment process audit and showing them the simple calculation that on 30% attrition, this is how much it's costing you. Or on 4% attrition, this is how much it's costing you. And Simon, so I, I just want to um, pull out a couple of nuggets that, that uh, you just shared, which I think I, I want to emphasize. So number one, we're not suggesting that people just turn around today and increase their fees and ask for retainers no. on the same delivery model that they're currently providing, Correct. right? What we're saying is you need to deliver more value, which then, you know, means you can ask for more commitment and uh, a higher service fee, right? So, but the, del the value comes first. So you need to look at what you're providing for your clients and figure out how can we increase the value that we're delivering in order to justify or be entitled to ask for more commitment That's exactly. and a bigger fee, right? So secondly, though, and this is important because there will be people saying, but Mark, I already go over and above. I already deliver excellent value. Well, that's great, but it has to be visible to the client because, you know, maybe you do deliver exceptional value right now, but unless the client can perceive the you know the the difference that you're providing they're not going to appreciate it and they're not going to be willing to pay a higher fee for it so you need a way for i do a, a session where i mentioned you actually and i i promote i intro in my i've got a, a coaching program called billings accelerator uh which is specifically for the solo and uh small firms and one of the modules we do is about differentiation and i talk about making the invisible visible there may be lots of things that you're doing to add value behind the scenes. But, you know, unless the client can see it and experience some tangible difference, then they're not going to appreciate it and they're not going to be willing to, to pay you more for it. Um, the third thing that you mentioned that I liked is risk reversal. And you kind of just skipped over it, but I'd like to just double click on that if you have time, Plamen, because you raised a very co a controversial point, which I um, I encounter all the time as well, which is, why should we increase the guarantee period or, or offer a better, you know, reduce the risk for the client? Because we don't have any control over, A, the client's hiring decision, and B, you know, what happens after the candidate starts. We have no control over whether it's a good place to work, whether it's a good 
you know, uh, fit, um, so on, and whether people's expectations were managed properly. So uh, if the candidate doesn't stay, that's not our fault. So why should we why should we offer a, a better guarantee? Well, uh, uh, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying, but we've actually built something which is actually a reverse risk reversal. Well, okay. Reverse risk reversal. What is that? Yeah, well, I'd go to a client and I'd go through my process where I will firstly evidence their cost of bad hire as it stands at this moment in time using our recruitment process audit. Okay. Once we've established the base, I will basically ask the clients to identify themselves as to what are the main reasons for these bad hires. And majority of the clients, they say, well, we've chosen wrongly. Clients don't want to take responsibility themselves. Yes. That, uh, uh, oh, we've actually got it wrong after we've appointed the person. We didn't look after them well enough. That's why they probably left. But if we start through the process, my job is to say to the client, I'm going to help you, Mr. or Miss Client, to get it right to start with by doing these three-dimensional assessment processes. So you choose objectively rather than gut feeling intuition. Once we've taken this part away, what we have in our process is we say to the client is I will give you up to 12 months. Actually, we've got clients of ours, I into clients in America that offer between 24 to 36 months free replacement. Wow. And uh, I'll be happy to quote this company. It's called Next Gen Global Executive Search. Two wonderful people called Charles Moore and Craig Hufford are actually the uh, principals of this business. They offer, they, their service offers between 24 and 36 months free replacement. The reason that they offer it is very simple. They've measured historically their performance and they've identified that every placement that they do last in the job or 94% of their placements remain in employment for a period of four years plus. So for them to offer a 24 to 36 uh, uh, months free replacement, not money back, free replacement is a no-brainer because their risk factor is 6%. But guess what these guys charge? 30% plus for their fees. So they trade money, i.e. take more money, for doing the job, but they give in risk reversal that stands out so much that it creates a USP that clients, clients gravitate to them. They choose them because they're confident in their service delivery. Now, right. naturally, it's not just to say so. They do a lot of three-dimensional assessments to make sure that the person that they put into the place, into place with the client, is a match. And yes. this is this extra service. Now, let me tell you about the risk reversal reversal. Okay. Uh, now, and I would encourage clients to, um, recruiters, if they've adopted the fact, they've taken the, the responsibility of uh, assessing, uh, uh, to doing the assessment and selection to help the clients to do the assessment and selection better. What happens is as soon as the employee starts the new job, why shouldn't recruiters re-interview candidates every one, three, six, and 12 months? So in our terms and conditions, what we say to the clients, we would like to maintain a relationship with the people that we recruit. And this is typically valid for many service provider contracts where you recruit a larger number of, 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 of uh, employees. So we say to the client, we will independently interview the candidates after one, three, six, and 12 months. And we 
and the client will agree a mutually acceptable uh, survey of 10 questions that cover points that are relevant for a checkpoint after one, three, six, and 12 months that measures the candidate satisfaction. So if the candidate satisfaction is dropped below, and that's negotiable, by the way, between 70 to 80% of the level, i.e. if you've got 10 questions and they answer one to five answers, and if they don't get 40 or 70 to 40, uh, sorry, uh, uh, let me get the numbers right. If you've got 40 questions, 40 marks on 10 questions and the candidate gets 80% satisfaction or 70% satisfaction, uh, that's okay. If they get below these numbers, they invalidate their risk reversal that we've just given them because we've now evidence to the client that it's not our fault, uh, I, at the beginning of the outset, but it's their fault. Now, how do you sell this one to the client as a benefit is also right. very important. Okay. So wait, let me get this straight. So I love the idea of doing the, the, uh, employee satisfaction survey one month, three months, six months, 12 months. Is, did I get that right? Yes. Um, and, but what you're saying is that if it falls below whatever the percentage is, let's say it's 70%, yeah. then that invalidates the guarantee. The 12 months replacement. That's right. Okay. We go right. to standard yeah. replacement of three months. Um, okay. I have a very specific example for a, uh, from a client of ours where they gave us a many service contract for the U.S., and we've recruited approximately 20 to 30 roles per annum over the past three years, since 2017. So we've recruited a vast number. They have a massive expansion in the U.S. Now, they saw it as a value, and HR assisted in the process of making sure that these questionnaires are accurate and relevant because it gave them feedback, positive feedback, even though it may have been in one particular region uh, the, across the U.S., and in one particular region, they were getting constantly issues with employees dropping. Now, if you think of it, from the survey, it was clearly identified it was not the employees because everywhere else they were doing well, but it's the management team and the implementation of onboarding after they've taken the job, which ultimately enabled the, um, the, the, um, the uh, national sales director to say, actually, we see there is a problem and we can tackle this problem by actually addressing the issues as to how these people have been onboarded, how they've been dealt with after they've taken the job. Now, that's how you sell it to the client as a positive because they're actually getting objective information that's not on a, like a, a rule of thumb, so to speak, but actually feedback which is very relevant. I'm giving you some IP here, which is for free for everybody. It's brilliant. I I love it, uh, Plam. And listen, you're. I always enjoy our conversations. I could I could talk to you all day, and um, but we are we are out of time for today. So what I'd like to do is, um, first of all, can you tell people quickly about the the Rewired Recruiter? Well, uh, I've published three small eBooks. They're very easy to read. Take ten to fifteen minutes. And they're basically making the point. The first one was called The Death of Contingency Recruitment, which are published in 2017, February. Then in 2018, uh, was it 2018 or 19? I published a second book called Redundant. Once again, talking about which position are you going to take? And the last one is The Rewired Recruiter. The Rewired Recruiter is a compilation 
of my views that people have been listening to, but essentially it says that the future of recruitment is about this new generation of agile, value-added consultancy with a capital C. We say to clients, you need to, when I say clients, I mean our recruiters. He says, yes. drop the recruiter from your title. You need to become a talent acquisition management consultant. Management yes. consultants are associated with improvement and value add. Right. Recruiters, yes. unfortunately, have not got a very brilliant reputation. I mean, if you actually go and search a recruiter, and I think there was a particular phrase. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're saying. If you do a Google search for recruiters are, and then Google will fill in some quite unpleasant um, suggestions. That's right. For you. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So, uh, so in, in essence, what I'm saying to people is don't wait. Take a leap of faith yeah. and change. You need to change fast because time is moving and before you know it, it will be too late. And people need to look at, rather than inventing the world, they need to look at companies or uh, service providers, consultancies that will offer them this sort of help. And I've not touched in one thing that I'm just going to say it and I'm, I'm going to leave it for our next conversation. But okay. one of the biggest growths that we've seen in recruitment is marketing. Yes. Very few recruiters understand how to market. They think that by sending a few emails here and there, it's okay. Marketing represents content creation, constant multi-channel digital communication, yeah. and ultimately having a system that tells you who you need to speak with. Yes. You only speak you with the it. people that are ready for you. Well, listen, uh, let's say that will be the topic of our next, um, next time you come on the podcast, Plamen. And actually, um, on that note, I, you... I was very honored that you invited me to speak at your event last summer in London called the Retained Recruiter Academy. And I delivered a, a workshop which was about leveraging content marketing in order to um, position yourself to win retained search assignments at you know better fees and with more cooperation from the client. Um, so what I'll do is I'll put a link where people can request that video uh, in the show notes below. Um, before you go, Plamen, let me give you let me give a brief commercial for iIntro here. Um, by the way, I am a, a customer of iIntro, uh, so it's a product that I I really believe in. And uh, iIntro enables recruiters to deliver to their clients an unparalleled new employee retention rate of over ninety six percent in the first year, reducing commercial downtime and overall cost to hire for employers. So full disclosure, I'm a customer of iIntro. I love the product. I'm also a referral partner. So if you follow with Plamen's team and engage with iIntro, please mention my name. They will take extra good care of you. Plus I get a small commission, which is uh, which is always nice. The price you pay is the same either way. Um, Plamen, thank you so much for your time today. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you, Mark, for inviting me. You've got a wonderful audience. People believe in you and uh, you giving me the opportunity to speak through you to your audience and my audience uh, has been invaluable and I thank you for it. All right. Have a, have a great rest of your day in, uh, in Bulgaria and look forward to meeting you in person again eventually when we're allowed to do that. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks again, Plamen.
Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.